Welcome to the Fly Culture Podcast, bringing you interviews, reviews, and fishing tips. Here's your host, Pete Tigers. Welcome back, everyone, to the very latest Fly Culture Podcast. I'm going to start things with um, a word of thanks uh, for all the kind comments via email and social media for the last podcast I did um, with Fergal Sharkey. And interestingly, while I was setting up to do uh, record this one, I got an email in um, from somebody in Australia, actually, Ben, which sums up perfectly what we were trying to get across and convey within that podcast. And I'm going to read that now. Um, Hi, Pete. Wow. I've received my first copy of Fly Culture magazine, and I've given it a couple of weeks to really let those wonderful stories sink in. Thank you, Ben, very much indeed. I must say that I'm glad I subscribed Sight Unseen. The content does not disappoint. With so much North American fly fishing content out there, being able to read a quality UK-based magazine has been enlightening. On that note, the recent podcast where you interviewed Fergal Sharkey was one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. In Australia, I think we ignorantly believe that the revered English chalk streams, although having been somewhat gentrified over the centuries, are still the pristine watercourses they have always been. I was horrified to learn of the debilitating draining and polluting issues these streams are facing. What a wonderful and very well-informed advocate to, for these streams is Fergal. Of course, the waste products of a large population must go somewhere. However, there must be hundreds of better solutions than to dump raw sewage into these streams, if indeed they are still flowing after the water companies have taken their share. Such gross mismanagement is appalling. Thank you for bringing these issues to light and for allowing guests to say what needs to be said. Thank you, Fergal, for fighting for better water resources for decades, realising that outcomes aren't what you expected and looking outside of the box for different strategies to provide different outcomes. Outstanding. Sincerely, Ben. Thank you, Ben, for that and the kind words about fly culture as well. And that wasn't just the only message we'd got. And I'm really, really pleased that this has got across to people. I know there's lots of people who are aware of what's going on with the water companies, but it was certainly a really emotive subject. And I'm pleased it did strike a chord with so many people. We're lucky to have people like Fergal who stand up and question what is happening and do something about it. And I hope it acts as inspiration to others to help fight the disgraceful behaviour of the water companies. And since this has actually happened, I've been sort of bit, been doing a bit of digging around and thinking, right, what do we, what can we do? And I've tried my best to retweet, share stuff, put it on fishing forums, and let people know what's going on out there. And like I say, I know many of us do, but there's still lots of people. And I hope in some small way, this helps get people together. And I've been looking on places like the social media, Instagram, Twitter. There are the water companies all have Instagram pages. They say that the service departments and uh, don't look at them. But I wonder if we do start hitting those a little bit more in a concerted effort. And I also looked, and I know Fergal brings up about the uh, management of the environment agency and how they're not fulfilling their roles. And I looked up Sir James Bevan, who's the chief executive of the environment agency, and I found he's actually on Twitter. Um, his handle, just in case you might be interested in it, is at James Bevan EA. His surname is spelt B-E-V-A-N, just in case you might be interested. But, you know, perhaps if we are continually seeing these things that we make ourselves in a greater group 
just keep hitting these people and let them know. So, Fergal, thank you so much. I know um, he subscribes to this podcast, so I know he'll be listening, and I'd like to say thank you to him on my behalf, but also on behalf of so many messages I got from people as well. Also, thanks for the messages I got for the previous um, podcast before that with Steve Cullen as well. I know that was really well received. It was great to catch up with him. So thank you for that as well. And as you know, I always make sure I reply to every message and um, I really, really do appreciate it. But this one, I hope we can help in a small way, build some momentum with it. So on to today's podcast. I'm really pleased to be joined by Dave Fels. Uh, he's also known as Corsican Dave. He's an all-round fly angler, probably best known for chasing carp and barbel on the fly. Today, I hope to learn about his fly fishing career and a bit more about setting up for these species. Um, and also, I'm really, really pleased that he's a contributor to fly culture. I think he's written three articles for us now. And he captures exactly what our magazine is about in there there's been some great pieces that he's written and he's a really important part of the fly culture family as well so dave it's great to have you here how's it going um it's great to be here pete and thanks very much for those really kind words um you know it's a it's an honor uh, and a privilege to be um chatting to you today uh so um yeah i'm fine thanks very much um good good sun, sun's coming out fishing? sorry are you getting out fishing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, during the last week, uh, I've been out for pike a couple of times on one of my local venues. Um, uh, the weather's actually been quite good for that. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's uh, it, yeah, things are, are nice. I'm getting out fishing a little bit more at present, of course, because we're furloughed. Um, and so um, I'm sort of in and out of my day job, so to speak. Uh, so, um, yeah. Actually, at least as busy as I would be normally, but on the fishing side. Good. And are the pike biting? Yeah. Um, I've not had any uh, monsters, not in the last week or so, uh, but uh, but yeah, they're keen. Uh, and I've, um, I've got the knack. I mean, I've been fly fishing for pike for now. Crikey, must be the best part of 15 years. And it's a case of, um, no, as with any fish, it's uh, knowing how they work really uh and how you work with them and looking at the likely spots uh working out how you're going to get a fly into that and what you want that fly to do so um so yeah uh, i'm reasonably successful at that yeah good and that's hopefully i i we're really keen to pick your brains particularly on the carp side of things and the timing seems to be pretty good for it you know i've stopped just in the very short term fishing for trout at the moment because I think, in my opinion, the water's a little bit too warm, so I'm going to leave them alone for a bit. And this is where these other species come out, whether people are heading to the coasts, whether they're chasing pike or carp or other species. Um, so it's kind of interesting. So I'm, I'm fascinated to learn a little bit more, and particularly with the way that you go chasing these fish as well, which I think is a little bit different and really, really interesting. So I'm looking forward to that. But where did you, where did the journey start for you? Where were you growing up and, and um, when, when did fishing come into your life? Right. So I um, come from the fishing hotbed of Milton Keynes. Um, uh, it's certainly not a fly fishing hotbed or wasn't when we were kids. We didn't know anybody who went fly fishing. Um, uh, trout fisheries were only just starting to get going at that point. So my um, background was I've always been interested in nature. 
what started that probably my dad who's into his bird watching and that sort of thing but also we had a garden pond and that was an endless source of fascination for me we had newts in there and so funnily enough reptiles and amphibians is one of my specialist subjects uh and went on from there uh to looking at fish and it was just this sort of desire to be part of their world in some respect uh not necessarily to catch them but to watch them and to see what they do and of course because they're underwater uh and and sometimes quite often in fact of course hidden um it's how do you get in contact with them and fishing seemed to be the natural approach so i pestered my parents and they sort of said well it's not really our thing uh but eventually what really did it for me was an aunt uh took me uh, fishing with my uncle's fishing gear, um, an old cane rod with a with a, um, a dodgy wood tip. And um, we fished over my grandfather's back fence, which happened to back onto the Grand Union Canal. Can't remember what I caught. I know I caught something. It would have been a perch or a roach, you know, the same as everybody else, on bread paste. That was it. I was hooked from then on. Uh, you just couldn't stop me, really. And combine that with uh, the interest in natural history, uh, watching Cousteau on the telly, um, David Attenborough reading about his zoo quest uh, journeys, uh, Gerald Durrell. Uh, and we'll probably return to that a bit later uh, because that sparked off um, a couple of ideas as well. But um, yeah, big influences like that. It's fascinating you talk about the connection with the fish and you know I when I I'm not catching many at the moment but when I catch a salmon and I'm lucky enough to catch salmon um where, just as I'm about to release it there there feels as though there is a connection brief although though it is between me and the fish and it is a it, it transcends to me at least anyway a level you know it does feel as though for that brief moment you have that connection with that fish before it goes on its journey and it it still continues to blow my mind that you know that's a fish that's traveled so far and found its way home again it just just extraordinary but i i get what you mean about that um connection with fish yeah i think um if you come back to uh handling fish for instance now you know, there's there's all sorts of moral arguments about whether whether we should be catching fish at all and, and, and you know, whether fish feel pain and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's really quite interesting, particularly handling, um, let's say, the big carp. Uh, yeah, they struggle. Uh, of course they do. Um, you know, you're not bringing them in completely tired out. It's not good for the fish. Uh, but there certainly becomes a point, as you say, um, about the release time or even before where you sense that the fish is basically maybe thinking who knows what they're thinking but they appear to relax a wee bit and it's almost as if oh i'm not in danger um and for me that's quite a nice feeling you know but particularly you watch that fish go away you know you put the fish back into the water um and you've intruded in its life a little bit but you've You've learned something. You've derived some pleasure from it. Um, and hopefully we can pass that on to other people as well. You know, just how much uh, fun it is and how much you can learn about these creatures uh, by the pursuit of angling for them, even if you don't necessarily catch them. And um, once again, that's a, you know something we'll, we'll get onto later on. You know, this whole concept of watching fish 
um, seeing what they do, trying to, trying to get to a certain extent inside their psyche, which hopefully makes us better fishermen. Yes, absolutely. We've, we've got a tiny little pond in our back garden. It's tiny, um, ornamental type thing. And, you know, we have some fish in there and well, we got raided by herons, but, um, we've got some small mirrors in there and, and watching them is just fantastic that we feed them. We have a coffee about half 10 every day and Emma and I go out and feed them and, and watching them. And it's amazing how often they miss the food. Um, how often they don't actually connect with it in the same way. And it's very interesting that we often blame ourselves for a fish not eating, yet sometimes they miss it. And I think when they're feeding at the surface as well, that their vision, when they're right up underneath it, I don't know if it is, you know, how that affects things as well. But it's really, really interesting to see that. And I've learned a lot just sitting watching as you say watching fish and i'm i'm i guess i'm similar to you that i'm perfectly happy just watching fish and i was recently up in the chalk streams and went into stockbridge and um i had a, a coffee i was way too early i was fishing with with brett and i was way too early and there was a fish hidden it was a great big rainbow trout but it was fascinating that people were coming feeding some of the small little wild fish that were there which i love but it was fascinating seeing this guy was hidden away under a walkway. And I think I was thinking to myself, unless you were a fisherman, you wouldn't have known that fish was there. And it must have been six or seven pounds. It was a great big old thing with a big kite and was a great big old fish. But it was fascinating watching him. And yeah, as an angler, seeing him that people who didn't angle probably didn't see that. It's fascinating, isn't it? It sure is. Yes. Um, and, um, you know that uh, it's the the fact that fishermen uh, and particularly fly fishermen, I think, uh, although some people might shoot me down with this, seem to be naturalists. You know, uh, and in many ways, uh, we're not uh, just we're not just fishing; we're observing those fish, and we're also observing the environment around it. Uh, and we are quite often. It comes back to you uh, to the comments about the Fergal Sharky. Uh, podcast you know we are quite often the first line of defense if there's anything untoward happening in the environment uh, so um, I think we play quite an important role there not just uh, as well in protecting the environment but communicating that back to other people who don't fish and maybe um, aren't quite as familiar with that aquatic environment as us yeah yeah good points good points so take me i know the answer to this because and i'm sure if people have read fly culture they'll know the answer to this as well but when you your fishing career was getting going there was that moment when you thought yes this is for me um did you have a mentor uh i didn't as such i think a key person certainly as far as the fly fishing was concerned was a guy called peter smith who um was actually the subject of my uh of the last article he gave me a fly rod uh very early on uh i think i must have been about nine or ten and to be brutally frank i didn't really know what to do with it uh i knew that i knew what fly fishing was from reading and so on uh but i promptly attached my trusty black print spinning reel went down to the grand union canal with a float rig and wondered why it didn't cast very well uh so um yeah but um peter knew what he was doing 
uh, he obviously realized that uh, there was a spark fishing wise. And I think he was just trying to broaden my knowledge a wee bit. And something else that he instilled uh, was the idea, um, which remained forgotten for a very long time, uh, that fly fishing could be used for uh, species other than trout and salmon. Uh, he met, happened to mention he'd caught accidentally um, quite a large pike fly fishing, and that must have lodged somewhere deep in the psyche uh, and, and re-emerged later. The, um, my main um, inspiration really was TV, and but particularly books. I'm a very avid reader. Uh, at the time, of course, there was no internet. Uh, so all the research that you did had to be either word of mouth or, as we did as kids, we just absolutely destroyed the local library. I mean, uh, <laughs> so uh, and and I've still got some of those books from back. And I bought some quite advanced books when I was a kid, you know. So um, uh, Fred J. Taylor's books were a great source of inspiration, particularly when I started specimen hunting for Tench. Uh, BB, great stories, obviously Dick Walker. And then if we look at the TV side of things, uh, then um, a great inspiration was a very off-the-wall program called The Fishing Race, uh, where um, where teams of people went out to try and catch as many species as possible. Uh, something that stuck in my mind there was um, two guys um, managing to get themselves into a zoo aquarium, uh, which completely skewed the results <laughs> and, and also stuck in my mind later, you know. Uh, and John Wilson, uh, moving forward, uh, the Go Fishing series. Uh, we were in the Anglia television area so we got the the john wilson programs um as early as anybody else and you know that was a bit of a revelation as well so um not individual people as such uh i bounced an awful lot off of my best fishing buddy uh we just bounced ideas off of people off, off of each other and um encouraged each other to try different things all the time it's interesting you say about the john wilson that I remember that used to be on late on a Friday night, didn't it? We used to, where I lived, it used to be on, yeah, late Friday night and I'd watch that. And it's been fantastic that the Paul Whitehouse and Bob Mortimer programs got yet another series as well. And having that on prime television, again, I watched closely the feedback from the non-angling fraternity Um and it was just so positively received. And I know it's not really just about fishing. It's about them exploring life, really, and perhaps the meaning and the fragility of life. Um, but I think it was, I think that's absolutely fantastic news. And also what you talk about, the library is interesting to me. And certainly two guests I've had on here that I can think of off the top of my head, Charles Jardine and, and um, Pete Cockwell, their books played a big part in my development as a fly angler. And it seems as though things could be or might be a little bit different now that you don't need to have to be to write a book. These guys, you know, went out and the people you mentioned went out and spent hours and hours on the water learning their craft, learning about the behavior of the fish. And it seems as though things are slightly different now. Perhaps I'm just a, a dinosaur about this, but it, it just seems to go on the amount of followers rather than, you know, you could be perceived as not such an expert, but if you've got lots of followers, perhaps you are perceived as that. How does that look to you? Uh, I think we probably think the same on that, Pete, to be honest. 
the 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 I've got a, a big collection of of angling books, and they are a constant source of pleasure and inspiration uh, to me. And uh, I think it's a little bit easy, or it seemed to me that it's a little bit easier to tap into a book, and you've got it in front of you, and you can go backwards and forwards and reread bits and so on. And yeah, you can watch a YouTube video, and you can and you can retrack, but it's not quite the same. Uh, I think, um, yeah, uh, there's a lot of really, really good stuff uh, that's written. Um, and as you've said, the people that uh, have been out there and have, have compiled bits of writing like that, uh, we know from our own experience, you spend an awful lot of time and effort doing it and trying to get it right. There's an awful lot of stuff, uh, YouTube type stuff, that is quite momentarily inspirational with a bit of a wow factor, but actually the quality isn't there. You know, the um, the advent of um, of reasonably cheap video cameras uh, has meant that everybody thinks they're Cecil B. DeMille, uh, <laughs> and 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 frankly, they're not. You know, uh, it's it's just a shame. But on the other hand, it's inspiring people to get out there. So there's always a flip side to um, yeah. to both yeah. these That's stories. That's the really important point, isn't it? We want more people fishing. It appears there are more people wanting to take fishing up as well, which is fantastic news. And, you know, on one of the questions I was asked recently on one of the podcasts, you know, we want to bring everyone in no matter where they're from. Um, so that's all good. So if those things are a vehicle for doing that, I'm all for that as well. So, you know, I guess it is as you get older, it's, you look at what influenced you and of course the influences change, don't they? And, and are, are more rapid and more wide as well. And, you know, I know, um, fly fishing is seen as a cool sport. I hope more so in the UK. And I think that is as a result of, social media as well but let's take you back to you know your career again and you said that you were given the fly rob when did the fly fishing really start to get going for you and I, I thought it was fascinating that you mentioned um that your friend sort of mentioned about catching a pike and that obviously as you say was a point that stuck in your mind in your psyche that as you developed as a fly angler you explored that more so than anything else I guess Absolutely. The uh, I believe it or not, I I actually really just gave up with a fly rod. Um, one of my first trips um, as quite a young kid was out to Grafham Water with this old school, but as it was then, new school glass fiber, heavy, soft Bruce and Walker. I couldn't get on with it, you know. Uh, and I pretty much said well it's not for me plus I, uh, at the time in my mind i didn't have the venues because of course um trout fishes were relatively expensive uh and there weren't that many of them it didn't occur to you that you could maybe go down to the canal with a fly rod and target roach and and chub and that sort of thing so if we then go fast forward um i uh ended up uh with a very nice job with a multinational chemical company and my uh, location was in a laboratory uh, complex in a village with we actually had um, a stocked uh, trout lake uh, on site uh, wow. it was yeah I know amazing 
And um, so I just used to wander down there at lunchtime and, and give it a bash. And I caught the odd fish and it wasn't so bad. But one day I was aware of a couple of um, trades guys watching me on their lunch break. Um, and I was feeling a bit self-conscious, as you do. And one of them wandered over and said, um, hey, mate, there's a fish over there. Look, over there. Can't you see it? I couldn't see this at all. And um, Andy, as I now know him, said, quick, give me your rod. Fired out this enormous amount of line. I'd never seen anything like it. It dropped absolutely plumb. The next thing, the line tightened up. The rod arced over um, and he's into a fish. He handed me the rod and said, there you go, mate. It's your fish. Well, that was the, the start of a great friendship. Um, Andy not only taught me how to uh, cast, uh, he was a very, very, is a very, very talented fly caster, um, but he also showed me how to look for signs of fish. Um, and, um, and also another thing, uh, despite the casting, something that really lodged away uh, was um, he always used to say, there is no point casting for the horizon when the fish are at your feet. And that's always stuck with me, and that's a that's a very very good point uh, that uh, that a lot of fly fishers should take note of. You know, everybody fixates on casting, um, and presentation is important. But do you know what? Distance, a lot of the time, it's fairly secondary. So, um, yeah, fair play, Andy Izzard um, really started me on on the journey there. Uh, so, I'm um, good for him. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking off mic and um, the outdoors is incredibly important to you and uh, mountaineering came up and it's interesting. It's such a cool to me anyway um, subject. I'd be absolutely useless at it, but it, there seems to be some sort of a theme here because I'd love to say you're the first mountaineer we've had on here, um, but you're not. We've had Nick Yardley. Um, who actually mountaineering took him to from Yorkshire, I think it was, over to the United States where he now lives. Dan Osman, who's been a guest, and they're both contributors as well to the magazine, is a keen mountaineer as well. And yourself as well. Where, do you think that sort of slots in with fishing and the need to be outside and, and in the environment, do you think? I think it does. I think there's a huge amount of crossover. And um, I think um, an awful lot of our uh, of the listeners um, from out with the UK will at this point be going, what are these guys talking about? And particularly the guys from from the States, because um, they're it really isn't an issue, you know. Um, it's very much part of the outdoors scene uh, that uh, if you're into mountaineering, if you're into kayaking, canoeing, the chances are you've got a fishing rod with you, um, more often than not possibly a fly fishing rod. Uh, so um, uh, as I say, over there, it's not an issue, but there's definitely loads of crossover. And yeah. um, I don't have... Um, many regrets in my life, but possibly one would be the number of days I've spent in magical locations next to pristine water where I could see fish as a mountaineer, but I never put the two together. You just didn't. In the UK, there are two completely different subjects. Are you a fisherman or are you a mountaineer? And um, we are seeing that changing now. Uh, it's becoming cooler, 
funkier. We're beginning to see the sort of like the the snow sports dudes and dudettes going, "Hey, wow, this is something I can do during the summer." You know, um, it's great, and it's to be encouraged. Yeah, absolutely. And that must have been torturous being in those pristine environments, seeing fish and not having a rod. I don't know how I'd be able to cope with that, but I'd probably be a nervous wreck about having to climb up some mounting anyway. But um, do you think part of that, and you know, we've touched on social media a, a, a little bit and the influence, as you say, of the US comes across here about the great outdoors. The And I, I think to me, a lot of that is possible probably possibly led by companies like Patagonia and you know their associations with mountaineering their associations with fly fishing and one of the things I've noticed in recent years in the UK as well the amount of fly anglers wearing Patagonia caps which has been really interesting to see that people I wonder if that as you say that influence is coming from those sorts of places Absolutely. Um, and in fact, my um, my links with Patagonia go back a long, long way. So um, uh, when I left university, I was working uh, for one of our local outdoor shops in Milton Keynes, funny enough. Um, and we were one of the first shops in the UK to stock Patagonia. Nobody had heard of it. Absolutely nobody had heard of it. And um, we were blown away by the colours and the quality uh, and also the Patagonia catalogue. Oh, boy, oh, boy. You know, those photos in there. And, and wow, there was fishing alongside mountaineering gear. And the guys were really wearing really cool, nice clothing. Um, and it sowed that seed of, hey, wow, you know, the, these aren't different subjects. It's just all part of the, of the thing. Um, and a, a good example of how stayed and reserved in some respects the UK can be at times is uh, our rep had uh, a fly fishing vest from Patagonia. Uh, it was only a sample um, and I took quite a shine to it, uh, but it was a sample. He couldn't sell it to me. And uh, then when he came back with the next season's uh, uh, exhibits, if you like, for, for ordering, he uh, he said, Dave, that fly vest, um, would you like it? Uh, yes, of course I would. You know, why not? And um, he, the thing is, he hadn't been able to sell a single one uh, to either outdoor shops or fishing shops. Why? Because the vest was grey and not green. Yeah. So we're talking early 80s here. Uh, and I think things have moved on an awful lot from there. Uh, companies like Patagonia, uh, led by fantastic guy, Von Schuenau. Um, he's got credibility in the mountaineering world, the surfing world. It's a really big thing for him as well. Um, and of course, fishing. Uh, and uh, we've got the uh, the 1% for the planet sort of thing. And, um, you know, these are, it, it's basically saying we need to be aware of the environment it's not just um our playground it's something that we need to look after and protect for other people and we need to give something back uh we need to be part of um the if you like the replenishment and and the safety of of that environment that we're in rather than just taking from it absolutely and that ties in with you know the introduction in the previous podcast about the work that fergal and others are doing as well and you know it's why i hope we become as a group even more vocal and take these things on 
a little bit more and take these companies to task a little bit more in perhaps different ways. So, you know, I'm thinking about that a lot at the moment. And I'm sure if I can think of something smart enough that I will let people know about it on here and if there is a way of doing it. But, you know, it's interesting you say about the fly vests and stuff like that. And, you know, I often talk about how fly fishing is actually perceived. And I bought one of those a little bit later and it was the cream colored one because the one you had is the mesh one, isn't it, for warm conditions. And and I managed to find one again. I bought it, I think it was in Farlow's actually many, many, many years ago. And it was a short wading jacket. And most of them at the time were like what Roger Moore was wearing as James Bond in his sort of safari suit phase. And that was, to me, it was different. It was shorter and it made perfect sense. I'm sure there were others out there, but that was the first one that I was aware of. And and that perhaps was, for me and for yourself, was the start of that process. And I know I'm heavily influenced by angling in the U.S., and the perception of angling in the US comparable to hearsay, for example, whereas our people, and as I've said before, people like J.R. Hartley and stuff like that, whereas they've got those guys with jeans, baseball cap and T-shirt, whatever. I, I'm, I've always been drawn more to that side of things, particularly with the writing of Girac and everything else as well. So that's where I've always tended to look for inspiration. But it's an interesting um journey to go on there and and interesting to see how that is affecting other younger anglers who are able to spread fly fishing in a positive cool way as well i think it's, it's really important for us isn't it it sure is um you know one as you say this uh, whole idea of the integration of the outdoors communities um including us you know that there's a couple of things that we can do to help ourselves here and and the, what probably one of the main things is just to be a bit less tweedy uh and a bit cooler uh whatever that might mean um maybe a little bit more professional with regards to the outdoors you know we like to think of ourselves as custodians of the environment and a lot of us are uh but unfortunately um you know there's still quite a few people leave litter around um and um you see much more of that from the fishing community than you do from the other outdoors communities sad to say it but it's true um things like um improving your personal navigational skills um and and you know your approach to the environment um uh and just just little things like um you never see a mountaineer drinking while they're climbing you know, um, we see an awful lot of, of drinking on duty as part of the fishing scene. I can't knock it if that's what people want to do, but it's that sort of perception of how we approach things. Uh, and and then the other thing is just to be chatty. You know, there's a, a lot of negativity about um, kayakers particularly. Uh, and I can understand exactly where that comes from. But crikey, stop and chat to these folk you know and hopefully they'll stop and chat to you and i think that works both ways you know they they need to uh understand that fishing folk are genuinely interested in the environment um they need to respect the fact that um folks have possibly paid an awful lot of money to be allowed to fish um and that they do they are allowed to do it um that uh we're not into torturing fish for fun uh, which sadly seems to be a perception uh, and that fishing is a thing um, it's not going to go away 
Um, and particularly we've seen that with kayak fishing, for instance. The, um, the paddle sports authorities uh, used to have a program for uh, an introduction to kayak fishing. It sort of slipped off the radar a bit. Um, and, and I have no idea why that is. Uh, it's, it's almost like, well, we don't really want to know about it. And there are a couple of things that um, kayak fishers, for argument's sake, do that don't square with safety in some respects uh, from the paddle sports community. Anchoring is a, is a very obvious one. Um, you know, you do not anchor kayaks. Well, the sad fact is, or the fact is, that you do anchor kayaks when you're fishing from them. So rather than saying we don't want it to happen, the paddle sports community needs to understand uh, that uh, it does happen, it is a requirement, and we need to find safe ways of working and teach people how to do it. Uh, so, as I say, a bit of give and take from both sides, um, uh, but generally what we're seeing, certainly in the UK, is a greater move towards integration of the two groups and a greater understanding and trust and respect, and that's all for the positive, of course. Yeah. yeah, well, I hope that does um, get sorted at some stage. Now, before we, I start questioning you on targeting carp, um, in the introduction, I said you're also known as Corsican Dave. And I remember years back on one, some fishing forum, seeing your name on there. So that obviously stuck with me. That was a long, long time ago now, I think. Um, how does that name actually come about? Is there a story behind it? There's no real story as such, uh, Pete, uh, but uh, my family name, uh, Fels, is relatively unusual. And we um, we discovered, uh, somebody else had done the research, another member of the family, uh, that our family came from Corsica uh, about 600 years ago, uh, came over to the UK, Uh we, there's a little village in the uh, north centre of Corsica up in the mountains there with the family name. And um, as far as a moniker from the point of view of mountaineering and fishing was concerned, Corsican Dave kind of stuck. There are a lot of Daves out there. So um, quite aside from the surname, which some people have problems pronouncing, uh, Corsican was a good one to pick on. So that was a, a nice, easy hit. Great. And um, Corsica to Milton Keynes, hey? Yeah, absolutely. Who'd have thought it? Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, we've travelled a bit. Uh, so there's there's a, a bit of a theme there as well. So um, let's get on to some of the meat of this uh, interview about carp fishing. And um, I know you look at, and I, I, I'm trying to remember back to the first carp that I caught on a fly. I think it was in Cornwall. And it must be about 20 years ago with a couple of friends of mine, Steve and a friend of his said, hey, do you want to come and um, catch carp on the fly? And, you know, th there was a little bit of it going on, but I didn't know so much about it. Um, we sort of threw some biscuits out, got the fish rising and cast them and I caught one and, and that was cool. But I know you look at things in a slightly different way and this is where it's really interesting for me as someone who likes to stalk fish as well, be it on the river or wherever that may be. You don't prefer to throw biscuits out or chum the fish up um, and I want to learn a little bit about that. Um, how did that process come about and how did you get into carp on the fly? Okay, so um, I, uh, quite aside from reading about it, 
uh, I'd hooked up with a guy who went out uh, fishing for barbel in central Spain uh, quite a few years ago now. Prior to that, um, uh, so uh, Henry Gilby uh, used to edit a fantastic magazine, Adventure Fishing. Um, it was way ahead of its time, um, sadly. Um, I mean, if it was on the shelves now, I'm sure it would fly off. Uh, but um, there was an article in there by John Bailey about fly fishing for barbel in Spain. That had stuck in my mind, and I thought, I quite fancy doing that. So when I... Um, got uh, friendly with Colin and uh, he said, well, why didn't you come out to Spain with me? Um, sure enough, off I did. And we caught um, barbel on terrestrial patterns on the margins. But we also started to see carp. And, um, and although I'd seen carp before and tried to fish for them in the UK when I was a kid, um, I really hadn't regarded them as a, as a target for the fly rod. And this comes back to, once again, a little bit of inspiration. I picked up um, uh, Lefty Cray's Fly Fishing in Salt Water. Um, crikey, it must be over 20 years ago now. And it was a revelation. It was like, oh, wow, you can use fly fishing for something different. It's not just trout and salmon. Um, and obviously then ally that with having then tried it for um, saltwater fish, for pike, then barbel, seeing the carp and going, you know what, I, I can do this. Uh, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be any different. The same skills apply. I became aware of the American scene. Um, so uh, the obvious uh, one would be uh, Barry Reynolds um, uh, writing articles, Carp on the Fly as a book, uh, seminal book there, and realizing that these guys are doing it um, in exactly the same way as trout fishes fish you know it's based on observation knowledge of the species uh it just never occurred to me to use bait now yeah. um i don't have an issue with it you know um as such uh one thing i do think is that well you wouldn't do it for trout <laughs> um and it would undoubtedly work very well um so why do it but the, as I say, I don't have a problem with it. It's that if people want to do it, it's their choice. If they're happy with that, it's fine by me. Steve Yeomans from Midlands Fly Fishing, way back in 2000, very early internet article, this one, by the way, um, from the UK. It's, uh, uh, he said, um, fly rodding for carp is not the same as fly fishing for carp. And I generally go along with this. Dom Garnett, um, has quite a good take on it. He uh, says uh, it, or he regards it as a, a gateway drug, a way of bringing people into the sport. And I kind of like that as well. You know, if it works, why not? It's a bit like uh, the bait ponds that you have uh, attached to almost every trout fishery. So people can just come along and have a go. Why not? Gives them the sensation of it gets them into the fish. You know, it's a bit of a wow thing, particularly with kids or, in fact, even adults who've never had that opportunity before. But I don't accept that it's necessary. Well, we know full well it's not necessary. And uh, it's not also necessarily the best or most productive way. That depends on the situation uh, on the day. So it's just having a, an open mind to it. Looking at it from the other side once again, because it's always the bait community who seem to be, or people coming from the bait community, seem to be the most vociferous about all oh, you need to chum carp, 
particularly. But I actually see it as a potential barrier to the carp curious fly fisher, um, which seems to be a little bit forgotten. You know, if you're coming from a traditional fly fishing background, if you feel that bait is a necessary or an accepted approach, it can cause you to shy away from from the from the idea a bit uh, from the species rather uh, and maybe view it as a bit of a comedy sideshow, which isn't true. You know, there are game fish in their own right. So there are both sides to it. And I don't have an issue with it. Strangely, though, uh, once again, we're in a very different ballpark to almost the rest of the world. Uh, were we um, a non-UK based um, magazine, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Um, you know, it just doesn't pop up. I mean, if we look at our um, at our Carp Champions group on Facebook, uh, something like 80% of the members are from overseas. Uh, chumming isn't mentioned, you know, because these guys aren't finding it necessary to do it. But re to return to your original question, um, it's a valid approach. If people are having fun doing it, that's fine. Um, and, um, and good on them if it brings people into the sport. It's really interesting. There's a couple of things I've been thinking about. And I bought the Barry Reynolds and Brad Beefus book when it came out and read it. And I really enjoyed it. But I kind of put it down and put it away for a bit that I thought, well, how can I apply that? Because, you know, where I'd been catching carp, the water was incredibly muddy. And I thought, well, how are they going to see this? How's this going to work? How's that going to work? And I know we're we're going to get onto that at some stage. And I wonder as well with the chum chumming thing, do you think that is because some people are, it's a filler um, when we can't fish for trout if it's too hot, if a trout fishery is shut down, whatever that may be. But what I hope to get now in the next thing, on the next segment, is a sense of, right, okay, as you rightly say, it's a, 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 a technique that you love using that you love to do how do we go about doing that how what advice can you give us how can i learn do i have to think about that venue with a little bit more clarity in the water how do i think about approaching fish how do i find the fish they're, they're the things i'm really interested because this this to me is something that i'd like to learn more about and i've caught plenty of carp on the fly but as a fly a carp curious angler I think having spoken to you now, I, I want to get into this a little bit more and learn how to do it the way that you're doing it for the reasons that you say as well, that it can be something I can go do if there's no water for trout in the river or salmon. That's what I can do. So where should I start? What should I be doing and what should I be thinking about? Okay, that's big, big subject, actually. Um, yeah. I, and, and I'm going to use an example just for, just for starters um my my key point is watch the fish you know try and find and observe fish and uh my example for that it was a revelation um when i was out in spain um i happened to see a, a load of bait fish obviously troubled leaping away out of the water and naturally assumed it was what we'd regard as a conventional predator, uh, you know, a pike or uh, or whatever, uh, possibly zander. Um, and I was looking down into deep, quite deep water, and what I saw absolutely astounded me. Um, it was a 
a small school of bait fish surrounded by a pod of maybe half a dozen quite sizable carp. They'd got them corralled and they were piling in and battering into these bait fish. They were obviously hunting them down. The speed uh, and the agility of these big fish was astounding. Um, and carp are predatory. All fish are predatory in the right situation, and carp are astoundingly good predators. And it's quite something to see. Trying to persuade people um, that they don't just eat biscuits and prepared food um, is a big step in the UK, sadly. But with that mindset of you're going to go out and, and have a look and watch, yeah, it's going to be difficult if the water isn't particularly clear. Uh, but then you can use searching techniques uh, such as you would do on any normal trout fishery. Quite a few of these aren't gin clear waters. And also um, just look for signs of fish is a, is a good start. Um, the most exciting, other than a pair of lips clooping on the surface and taking beetles and terrestrials and these sorts of things, um, is maybe to see the swirl of a tail. And, um, you know, to see a tail poking or the tip of a tail poking out of the water, uh, that means carp head down feeding. Wonderful. You know, you've cracked two of the bits here. Um, uh, the uh, fact that uh, you've got to find the carp in the first place. Well done. You've just done that. And two, is it feeding? Oh, yes, it is. Now, what's it going to be feeding on? You have to use a degree of imagination here. Uh, but once again, um, uh, you can you could kick sample if you wanted to in your local local pond and, and see what's available there. But it's a good bet that they're rummaging around for the same sorts of things uh, that trout do. Uh, various invertebrates, um, uh, aquatic nymphs, that sort of thing. And we've got some specialised flies that, that do that. Uh, the various headstander type ideas that are weighted. Uh, you've got um, uh, the hook point rides upwards. They're all derivatives, um, pretty much, of American um, saltwater patterns, bonefish patterns, particularly gotches, crazy charlies, uh, the uh, fantastic clouds of minio, which will catch almost anything that swims, quite honestly. Um, and so uh, it's getting the fly then in front of that fish. But that's the other things to do, to watch for the movements of the fish. Um, and um, and then you're going to have to be working out how you're going to get a fly in front of them and what you're going to do uh, with that fly. Uh, no guarantees. Um, I seem to recall you telling me that uh, uh, one of your first uh, carp on on the fly uh, was a cruiser, and you flicked a uh, you flicked a fly um, into its path. It diverted, took the fly fantastic to be honest um you did really well there uh because because carp cruising tend to be on a bit of a mission um and um they they're not necessarily feeding uh but you obviously did exactly the right thing um i wouldn't have been able to resist that temptation either you know uh so uh it's thinking on your feet a wee bit but once you've got that carp feeding uh, or you can see the carp feeding, then it's a case of, right, what am I going to present to it? Um, tailing, uh, get a weighted nymph 
in there. Try and work out the direction the fish is, is going. Um, if you can see the tail continue to move, uh, that gives you an indication as to which way the fish is facing. Um, you might see uh, clouds of silt coming up. And um, quite often what's happening there is that the fish are burrowing through the silt, uh, quite often looking for small shellfish, um, small crustaceans, that sort of thing. Uh, but once again, you can see which direction uh, that cloud of silt is moving. And you need to try and lead uh, the fish. If you drop it, drop something on its nose, the chances are you will spook it. Um, uh, and particularly if you run a line across its back, same as any fish, to be honest. But carp have got surprisingly good eyesight as well as uh, other senses. And um, the chances are if you drop um, a big bushy nymph uh, about a foot or so in front of uh, where you estimate the fish will be, hopefully um, you'll see uh, uh, the line tighten and then that's when your other troubles begin that's if you can't see the fish properly yeah. you know? <laughs> really interesting there's a couple of oh, there's a few things i'm thinking about while you're saying this i guess patience plays a big part in things that you've got to be patient whereas you know it is easy to chuck biscuits out and get them going you've got to be patient i guess it involves we're in effect stalking the fish so covering water wandering around looking for for signs of fish the next thing is um distance i've seen that fish feeding how far do i need to cast does it have to be a, a long cast can i get relatively close and then those patterns you mentioned a bushy nymph would something like a damselfly or a shrimp or those sorts of patterns that we'd use on um still waters would they be appropriate to use yeah, absolutely. So let's take um, let's take the distance thing. Uh, bushcraft is very, very important as far as carp are concerned. Uh, they've got incredible eyesight and they can spot you from a long way off, even when they're in quite murky water. So um, sometimes being able to chuck out a long cast is useful. What's better is to work on your bushcraft skills um, and try and get closer. Um, and quite often, if you do that, you'll be able to uh, get within a couple of rod, rod lengths of them, which is ideal um, and gives you a much better chance of a proper presentation um, and also the hookup, which we'll come to later. Uh, you mentioned uh, the flies. Uh, so weighted fly patterns, exactly as you've suggested. The big proviso with carp is uh, hooks. Uh, they really need to be heavy gauge hooks, uh, fine wire hooks. You might get away with it, but the chances are that initial run of the um, of the carp immediately after the take was straighten a hook. Uh, so so two X hooks, definitely heavy gauge wire hooks um, are required. Uh, but um, yeah, your standard standard nymph and damsel patterns. Um, woolly bugger is an absolutely superb. Um, all-round pattern. Size-wise, uh, I would say anything between um, a four and a twelve. I tend to um, I tend to uh, be more on the bigger side. Um, I'm generally targeting bigger fish, although even small carp can easily hit a, a size four hook. Uh, 
But on, once again, carp aren't daft. Uh, they know what their prey looks like. So you're not going to be tying um, an ant pattern on a size four hook. Uh, it's, it's just completely unrealistic. You might strike lucky, you never know your luck. But um, your best bet then is you're looking at 12s and 14s. And uh, yeah, once again, it's just thinking about it, looking and seeing what, what they're eating uh, as best you can. And the thing that uh, you mentioned as well, there's a couple of things more um, that you said leading the fish. How far in front are you looking to land that fly? And also, if it's a weighted fly, I know you mentioned um, bonefish patterns that will sit the other way up because I'd be thinking if I was leading the fish, my worry would be that I'm going to snag on the bottom. Um, and is that where those bonefish patterns or reverse, you know, reversing the eyes around, would that make that less of an issue? Absolutely. So that's um, that's pretty much the point of them is that uh, they can be scuffed along the bottom. Uh, it works really, really well, actually. And uh, uh, quite often they'll um, puff up little clouds of, of silt. As far as um, distance in front is concerned, that does depend a bit on the clarity of the water. Uh, the clearer the water, the further away you can get away with your cast. Um, you can, uh, there's a fabulous video uh, online, it's a guideline video, I think, where uh, you can see um, a guy called Javier Pena um, drop a quite a big bushy pattern into clear water. You would have sworn that it was way too way, far away from the fish. Uh, it must be a good two yards that he's dropped it in. You see the fish bristle, come alive home in and dive on that thing like a cat it's wildly exciting so in clear water you can lead them a wee bit more um and arguably uh that uh then has less chance of spooking them when you've got um cloudy silty water where um obviously visibility isn't so great you're going to need to get it a little bit closer to that fish but rest assured they will still see it and sense it leads us quite nicely to two presentations here um so we're talking about underwater underwater you might be lucky and they'll take on the drop that sometimes happens but definitely you can be looking at retrieving there and the retrieves are short jerky like a little insect um uh, if you're looking at terrestrial patterns on the surface then it's much better to work out where that fish is heading for and to leave it lying static. Um, a drowning insect does not twitch across the surface of the water, certainly not in sort of six inch to one foot strips. So you have to think about that a bit and make uh, your, you have to think like a fish, think like the organism a wee bit. Yeah. So let's imagine I walked around, I found a feeding fish. It may be tailing. It may, you know, you, you've spotted it. I've made my cast. I've made my little short retrieve and the fish has eaten it. What next? Do I set on it? Do I strip strike? How do I, and, and on the drop, is it like a trout that it's quite clear that the fish has taken on the drop? How, how am I going to set on that fish? Okay. So, um, it's often very clear that the fish has taken, if it's on the drop, you will see the line move. Uh, but the big problem with carp is they are phenomenally good at ejecting um, 
something that doesn't feel right. And in fact, part of their uh, feeding mechanism is to sort of suck and blow a wee bit as well. Uh, so um, timing that hit is absolutely vital. You will whisk a lot of flies out of carp's mouths uh, when you get when you start, and even as you get more proficient. But um, the uh, the strike, um, a trout strike is too slow. It it just won't work properly. You know, standard lift of a rod, uh, you'll be very very lucky if you actually connect. But the uh, flip side is the strip strike, which everybody talks about. Um, that once again um, just doesn't have the angle sometimes, and um, there's a couple of things on YouTube where you see guys actually doing this. You know, they've got the uh, the rod pointed directly at the fish, the strip strike and miss. It's a combination of the two actually. So it's the lift and the strip. The lift gives you the angle. The strip sets that hook. What you've then got to be prepared for. Um, and I almost guarantee the first time anybody who tries this hooks a carp will get bust off. I almost guarantee it, unless they're incredibly lucky, because that is when the fish goes. That initial power surge is off the scale. I've had experienced salmon fishermen um, say, do you know what? This is in a different league to salmon. Um, those fish hit or after hit isn't really the word they there's momentary pause it's so difficult to describe and then they take off and they go route one there is no deviation there's no zigzagging and jagging about it's route one um off like a steam train and you have to be geared up to both uh physically mentally and arguably with your tackle uh, to be able to absorb that shock. So I found out um, I was beginning to get snapped off quite a lot. I'd gone down that arms race thing of, um, hey, wow, I want to be a super caster and super fast rods and tip action. Yeah, it's all really cool. And I can cast to the other side of the, of the pond. Um, but I found that that wasn't giving me um, the shock absorption that I needed uh, to protect the tippet from these big fish. And we're talking big tippets as well, by the way, um, just to drop on that. I don't use anything less than 12 pounds, no matter how small the carp are. Um, I've had fish that wouldn't have gone three or four pound conclusively bust off a 12 pound tippet. Uh, so do bear that in mind. When I'm targeting the really big fish, um, quite often I'm up to 18 pound tippet and uh, it's generally uh, about six to ten feet of tippet material straight through literally to the loop on the end of the fly line. Um, although a lot of the time, particularly when I'm using terrestrials, I will use um, a filled leader um, and then step down to the tippet. So that was just a little bit of an aside. But coming back to the shock absorption, um, Softer action rods tend to work a wee bit better. Um, the new um, S glass uh, is a uh, fantastic material for this. Uh, it's got uh, the power and the stiffness that you'd expect to be able to do quite fast casts, uh, but it's uh, got um, the 
flexibility and the resilience uh, to be able to uh, fight that fish right from the butt. Uh, it's a very advanced material and um, it's way, way different to uh, the old e-glass. Uh, I know there's still a lot of people think, oh, it's just glass rebranded. Um, it isn't. It's a very different material and it's worth trying. Um, it's, uh, it's a very, very nice feel. The other thing that I'm a bit of a stickler about is drags on reels. These have to be silky, silky smooth. Now I know, you know, uh, from an intro point of view, it probably won't matter what you use. Um, but eventually if you get into it, you'll realize that you need that whole system to be nice and smooth. And so really do look for a very good quality drag and a fair amount of capacity, you know, um, pretty, if, if you've only got a hundred meters of backing on your reel, you're going to be seeing that spool fairly regularly. Uh, so bear that in mind. Uh, yeah. I think at some point though, Pete, we maybe should just talk about beginner setups as well. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's go on to that. I was going to, one of the other things I just want, while you were talking about tackle, I assumed, a large percentage of the time you're going to be using a floating fly line. And I guess what line weights are you using for, is it sort of six, seven, eight weights? Right. So if we try and cover both the bases of um, what most fly fishers will have in their, in their uh, quiver, so to speak, um, most fly fishers will have a six, seven, eight rod, uh, and the gear to go with it and that's absolutely ideal uh, for the bigger carp uh, then an eight weight uh, would be the ideal eight weight for me seems to be a good all-round new rod for a bit salt water big carp reservoirs whatever um, but some um, six seven eight ideal um, pretty much your standard big water gear uh, is perfect to start with um, there are a lot of people out there catching um, fairly reasonable sized carp on sort of three and four weights and amazingly uh, low breaking strain tippets. Um, fair play to them. Uh, it's quite a display of, of angling prowess, but I almost guarantee they're not getting those fish in very quickly uh, and it's not particularly fair on the fish. Um, big carp will make a mess of you. Uh, there's there's no two ways around it but yeah your basic kit um six seven eight weight floating line um uh make sure you've got a reasonable amount of backing on your reel get out there have some fun um and what about for the beginners then i guess to add to that mat and net as well are really important uh certainly if uh well you certainly need a net um, you're going to struggle to bring these things in by hand and it's a lot fairer on the fish. And if we're talking from a UK perspective and uh, uh, being uh, uh, one of the fisheries, then having uh, fish handling is something that actually fly fishers can learn an awful lot from the bait community here. Um, they treat them almost like babies, but actually it's quite nice to see. And so having um, a mat uh, so you're protecting the fish from the ground, uh, that's important as well. So do be aware that um, uh, the fisheries will have rules about fish handling and uh, they make a great deal of sense. Um, further afield, yeah, trying to find something, um, some way of, uh, of protecting the fish uh, is important. And carrying around um, a big unhooking mat is sometimes quite impractical. 
my take on that, um, unhook the fish in the water. Sorry, the fish is far more important than your grip and grin shot. Uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, yeah, I'd hook the fish in the water. It's, it's as simple as that, really. Uh, you know, you're looking after the fish, number one. But certainly, if you are removing the fish from the environment for any period of time at all, make sure it's protected from dropping. Um, you know, you don't want to be dropping it on a hard surface, and you don't want to be, or any surface, and you don't want to be laying it um, on the ground either. Maybe a sheet of polythene, um, maybe your fly fishing jacket, if you really must have that trophy shot, but ideally do it in the water. Perfect. And you mentioned about beginners as well and kit for beginners. What were you going to say about that? Well, as I said, um, if you're coming from a fly fishing background, uh, the chances are that you've got this six, seven, eight reservoir type setup in your bag. If you're not into fly fishing, that would pretty much be, if you were to speak to a buddy, it'd be pretty much the kit that they tell you to get started out with anyway so that's great um number number two really after getting your kit is um try and find a buddy try and find a buddy who does it you know uh, whether that's just a fly fishing buddy or somebody's into carp or whatever try and tag along uh worldwide there are actually a number of very very experienced uh carp fly fishing guides in the uk there's um there's less so um, but um, certainly that would be a good way forward. Um, people like, and I'm going to miss lots of people here, I know, but there aren't that many, but people like Dom Garnet, who we've mentioned before, uh, Nick Hart, both of these guys guide for carp, and we'll show you both ways of doing it, give you a great day out as well. Um, Chris Kent um, ran an introductory weekend through Orvis last year, and although um, it concentrated on the um, on the baited approach, it was a fantastic way for people to get into the sport. It wasn't particularly expensive. Um, it was an awful lot of fun. And um, yeah, it, we need to be encouraging these sorts of things. It was great that that was um, Orvis, incidentally. Uh, Orvis have actually been quite proactive on the carp fly fishing side. And that leads me quite nicely into uh, the ideal book for anybody who's interested in fly fishing for carp, uh, which is by Kirk Dieter, and it's called The Orvis Guide to Fly Fishing for Carp, strangely enough. Um, and um, I would recommend anybody who's interested in fly fishing for carp gets that book. It covers pretty much the lot, the habits of the fish, um, tactics, tackle, um, uh, flies, uh, so definitely well worth a read and it's not ridiculously expensive fascinating great a couple of more questions because you're really inspiring me dave one of them uh you mentioned about the fish that i caught was traveling through and i casted it and that was two three years ago actually i'd caught a number i've been doing it and i've worked as you know um with nick and we've been playing around with it a little bit then and i'd sort of left it for a bit and um that was in november i think it was it was either october or november and i could see the fish and cast at it there's a couple of things i'd love to ask this time of year is there a time of the day that you're specifically looking or will you just go fishing and is there times of year can you catch fish on these methods all year round okay so time of day 
Um, in some respects, carp are the ultimate lazy man's fish. In the, you don't have to get out of bed too early. Uh, they like a bit of warmth. Um, so uh, although uh, they'll feed all day long, uh, certainly in terms of if you want to see them up on the surface, the chances are that, um, you know, uh, bright sunlight, uh, nice warm conditions, uh, that'll be the ideal uh, to get them moving. Uh, but as with all fish, um, you know, they uh, seem to be quite active at dawn and also at dusk. But I, my take on it would be uh, make life easy on yourself, you know, um, midday onwards with the sun up, fantastic, and you should enjoy um, good sport uh, there. So, uh, yeah, during the day, ideal. Time of year, um, once again, uh, carp have generally been regarded as a bit of a summer fish, but the more um, carp fishing has been done and, and, and analysed, and, and particularly with the fly fishing side of things, the more people are finding that actually, yeah, they will f uh, feed all year round. It's once again applying those skills of um, observation and experimentation. Uh, so uh, we've seen uh, some fantastic catches of carp from almost ice-bound ponds and rivers uh, in the States on the fly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they're a little bit slower um, in terms of, of their, their activity, uh, but they will feed, and they will feed on naturals, um, and that's what they're doing all year round anyway. Uh, once again, just to touch on the naturals point of uh, uh, or side of things, um, we haven't really mentioned my uh, going back to my experience with the bait fish. So um, bait fish patterns can be highly productive if they're homed in on 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 fry. Uh, and a good example of this, and it's, it's really in some ways quite humorous, is that a lot of the carp fisheries will now actually net out and try and remove um, these small bait fish from the carp fisheries because the carp home in on the fish rather than the boilers. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the bait anglers are complaining they're not catching anything. And the fish are going, hey, wow, look at this. I suppose in some respects it's the difference between us being served up a lovely uh, piece of sea bass um, and, and, and a corn burger. You know, it's, yeah, which would you rather go for? And I know, you know, there are people who will say, well, I'd rather the corn burger, but I'm sure you get the argument here. Uh, so once again, um, try and think, it's not outside the box, but try and think a little bit like that fish. You know, if you see them chasing fry, whack on a fry pattern, please. You know, it's how I caught one of my first bigger carp. And I guess there's so much in here, Dave, that's, inspiring and it's inspired me and i hope it inspires our listeners too i guess one of the key things with this as well is if you're going to go this route leave the dog biscuits at home and the bread at home isn't it um yes generally i i would go for that but then you know it's it's horses for courses if people want to do that um why not you know if it's fun and if they see that uh that that's what catches some fish um i really don't have an issue with it and, um, you know, it's, it's a free world out there. I just think that um, certainly from a personal perspective, um, I find it one more satisfying um, and two. Um, well, I've never actually done it. So but I certainly find it very productive doing 
what I do. Um, an example of that would be uh, one of my trips last year where I caught, I forget what the numbers of fish were, but in the, in the space of a week, you could say, oh, well, you only caught. I think I caught eight or maybe 10 fish during the course of that week. But the smallest was eight kilograms. You know, think about that for a moment. That was the smallest. The biggest was just shy of 16 kilos. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and on one amazing day, I actually had three fish up around the sort of 14, 15 kilo mark. Um, none, none of this was chummed. All of it was sight fished. And as a very well-respected carp angler said to me, you know what? Most bait anglers would be proud um, and maybe even jealous of that hit rate. So it just shows that it can be done. Um, I would say because in the UK particularly we have, we're quite fortunate in some respects, there is the, um, the stocked fishery culture as far as carp are concerned. Um, if you want to try catching carp on a fly, maybe use the bait approach. Um, the chances are you're not going to be able to wander around that fishery the same way that you do a trout fishery. Uh, so you may not be able to go and look for those fish. If that's the case, by all means, get yourself some dog biscuits and, and give it a go. And um, hopefully you'll catch carp and hopefully you'll think, oh, I can maybe now start targeting carp elsewhere. It's fun. It's exciting. You know, it's a real buzz. Hmm. Really interesting. I, th I think, I guess, coming from my, my own standpoint, somebody's fished a little bit that I would like to be able to, having caught bonefish and stuff like that, that's where this suddenly now for me has given me the confidence, and I'm going to get my um, Barry Reynolds book out in a minute and have another read of it, and that's where it's given me the confidence to say, actually, I'm going to do that. And where before, you know, I've got a carp lake down the uh, three minutes away that I'd caught plenty on dog biscuit um, techniques, whereas now it's making me think it is a quite, quite cloudy water. That's the only thing. And my initial thoughts while we're doing this is I wonder if I need to research a little bit more, find something with a little bit more clarity that gives me the confidence to say, right, okay, yet I can pop down the road there and, and give it a go and see what happens. But it's really inspired me to look at it in a different way. And I hope it does the same with the listeners as well. So thank you for that. Also, you say so you travel as well um, for carp. Is there a favorite destination aside from the UK? Um, I love central Spain. Um, it's out the back of beyond. I love the whole uh I love the distance. I love the the wild side of this. Um, integrating with the local people, um, you know, English isn't widely spoken out there. I don't mind having a go um, at speaking Spanish, and it certainly helps you um, on the ground. You know, you're not sort of like the uh, the you know a group of English guys out on the lash abroad. Um, you know, you're one guy, a little bit humble. Um, and you tend to be more accepted by people like that. And you find things out. You know, one of those early articles that I did uh, for you uh, described my experiences of finding this um, pokey little bar in the back of nowhere. Uh, and it turned out that the owner of the bar was actually a highly experienced um, carp and barbel fly fisherman. And, um, you know, you're not going to find that sort of thing uh, uh, by being in a big group 
and stick into yourself. So I actually really like the idea of just one or two people integrating a little bit, local food, local culture, um, and, and doing some exploration. So for me, that's a biggie. Um, I love Gran Canaria. Uh, Gran Canaria is um, very much, um, it's, a, it's a whole continent on an island. It's absolutely fantastic. If you want sun, sea and sangria, you've got it down on the south side. You want mountains, they're there in the middle. And the big thing for me is there are whopping carp. I mean, absolutely monstrous carp in the reservoirs uh, up there. And they're a real challenge. And, um, and, and I love it. You know, it's um, it's really, really exciting. Once again, it's um, it's relatively remote. You've you've got to uh, earn your turns to use skiers' terminology. Um, you've got to be prepared to walk and stalk, um, get sore knees, um, get sunburned, um, run out of water a wee bit maybe, um, and quite often uh, blank or maybe muff the shot uh but the rewards uh are evident you know with the with the catches when you do hit on it so for me yeah travel is a big thing also i have to say um because uh, uh we didn't mention this but i currently live uh in uh, just outside granton on spay which is north of the cairngorms in uh in the scottish highlands um we're not blessed with carp waters <laughs> so um uh it's actually believe it or not it's um it's easier and certainly a bit cheaper for me to drive down to edinburgh and hop on a plane to uh somewhere on the continent um and i get the weather as well so um yeah, travel is a big thing for me, and I, I just absolutely love it. It some of it's not even about the fishing, you know. Uh, it's much more about the environment, uh, the the nature, uh, and a different culture um, and a sense of place. Just love it. Lovely. Do you have a dream destination? The the one that you would love to go visit to say, right, this is where I'd like to chase something. I think. Um, I think we'd all like to do the um, the, the sort of tropical um, atoll stuff or blue water stuff. Um, who wouldn't want to go to um, India and fish for marsia, for instance? Who wouldn't want to trek around Australia and and maybe look at Murray Cod and Barramundi? You know, uh, all of these are, are just yeah, you'd love to go. There are probably two two places that stick in my mind. Um, recently I've been doing a bit of research into, uh, Iran, um, which is definitely off the tourist track. Uh, but there are massive, massive barbel out there. Um, I had a buddy from Iran, uh, when I was at university, got on with him so well. Um, the culture, the people seem really, really nice. I'm sure that goes for every country in the, in the planet, to be honest. Uh, but I quite like the food. Uh, so, yeah, that's one massive, massive barbel on the fly out in Iran. And then another one coming back to the very, very early years, inspired uh, by Gerald Durrell and David Attenborough, um, and more latterly, um, Jeremy Wade, for instance, is Arapaima. Um, I read about Arapaima when I was a kid. Uh, when I got into fishing, I always had thoughts of, I'd like to go to Guyana and get up the Rapanuni and look for these massive fish uh, in the wild. 
and I still would. I mean, I know you can fly to Thailand now and, and there are ponds with them stocked. Uh, but for me, that doesn't have the same cachet. I'd like to get out there in in the forests in Southern America and and hunt um, really big arapaima on the fly. That would just be nuts to me. How much fun would that be? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Now, we've been speaking for nearly an hour and a half. Crikey. And I would love to keep on talking, but I try and keep them around an hour, hour and a half or so. There's been so much information in here. You've genuinely inspired me, who's somebody who's been around the block a little bit, um, to say, right, okay, I'm going to give this a go. And I'm already planning a trip in my mind of something I want to do. So watch our channels closely to see if I manage to put it off. We've had a little bit of rain, so I'm hoping I might get swings and flies. But this is really inspired me to look at something that's been on trend for a, a little while now um but to approach it in a different way and that along with how i love to do things the slightly less obvious route to me is always the more interesting one and actually stalking down a fish is something that i'm really really excited to try and do so dave thank you so much for that um, I think our, lead, our listeners will find this fascinating too. You mentioned your Facebook page, Carp Champions. Can you tell us a little bit where we can find that and more information about that should people want to join those sorts of um, communities? Sure. So um, Carp Champions was set up by me to um, try and bring together carp on fly and lure, funnily enough, anglers from across the world. And we've pretty much done that. Um, it's very accessible. Uh, it's a public group. Uh, so if you just go into Facebook, um, do a search for Carp Champions, will pop up. Um, and what you'll find on there is um, it's it's we're just around a thousand members, which doesn't sound very much, but it's the quality of those members. We've got the leading exponents of fly fishing for carp from around the world uh on there you know the likes of dan frazier uh jim pankovitz who uh is a was a highly innovative uh fly tire um he's done a series of instructional videos they're on there all of these people are out there wanting to help you and i think that's a key point you know um approach it um with an open mind ask what might feel like a daft question you won't get sneered at or abused or laughed at people will help you and will generally try and um, help you along the journey you'll probably make some new friends out of it um, it might inspire you to travel a wee bit but most importantly the information is there i'm ably assisted by um, jamie sanford and jeff hadley um, both of whom have got plenty of experience we'd love to see you there quite honestly uh, so um, come along and have a look ask the questions as soon as you're on there um you'll know how to get in touch with me i'm quite happy to for people to send me uh private messages um i'm more than happy to um give my time and what experience i've got uh so please yeah get in touch dave thank you so much for that thank you for being such a great guest Pete, thanks so much for having me. Um, it's wonderful to hook up and chat. And um, yeah, it's been an honour and a privilege. And I really hope that people, as you say, are inspired by this and uh, get out there and look for some different species, um, try some different methods of fishing um, and basically enjoy that adventure. You know, that's what it's all about.
Fantastic. That's a lovely way to end. Thank you, Dave, very much indeed. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Fly Culture podcast. There are plenty more planned. Always contact me if you need help, advice, if you have questions, if there's things you've liked, if there's things you haven't liked. I'm always happy to talk um, to you about those as well. But thank you so much for listening to the Fly Culture podcast. Plenty more planned for very, very soon. The Fly Culture podcast is brought to you in association with Fly Culture, a quarterly print magazine. For more information, please visit flyculturemag.com. You can also find Fly Culture on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.